Greetings, Ray's audience. It is a privilege to welcome Jane DeFolco Parker, the SVP of Advancement at Auburn University. Jane, welcome to our show. My pleasure. It's good to be with you, Brent. It is uh, really a privilege to host you. And I have to start by saying that while over the years, I've been working on Evertrue for about 10 years, I've visited literally hundreds of campuses. But one of my absolute highlights was getting to visit you and your team at Auburn last fall, the fall of 2019. I'm wearing my pin from that trip today uh, for those of you who maybe are seeing on video. And uh, I will say that when we talk a lot about uh, creating a great donor experience, um, especially in this moment, we are in the midst of COVID-19, we'll touch on that. None of us have had any real social interaction in groups in a long time. And it makes me think extra fondly about how special it was to get a window into the Auburn family. Uh, and so, Jane, with that, welcome. Thank you uh, so much for, for sharing time. Happy to do it. Thank you. Now, you allegedly have a 45-year career in advancement, or at least that's what the bio says, or higher education. And I absolutely want to uh, get back to some of my experiences down on campus last fall uh, and certainly touch on state of affairs. But I really want to know about the Jane 45 years ago who walked into her first higher ed career opportunity. Who was she? Where'd she come from? And what led to that first opportunity? Well, in fact, it's now, it's now 48 years, Brent. Uh, but who's counting, right? Um, so I grew up in the Midwest, grew up in Northeastern Ohio, Barbara's daughter, uh, a family, blue collar family, no, no aspiration to go to college, uh, no expectation, quite frankly, that I would go to college. And in, in my early, my young adult life, I decided I wanted to go somewhere and, and try something different. So moved to Atlanta because I had some friends there and moved down with what I had in my car and uh, began looking for a job. And some folks said, well, you ought to go apply at, at Emory. And I said, what's Emory? I'd never heard of Emory University. So I did. And um, I was lucky. I got two job offers at Emory. One was to work in the law school. One was to work in the dental school. Fortunately, I, I accepted the offer in the law school because the dental school closed a number of years later as the whole dental health profession changed with the with the uh, advent of fluoride and all of this. So um, I began working at the Emory Law School as a secretary to some faculty members. And I was so lucky that at, from the first day, um, I had a fabulous mentor in a faculty member, Lucy McHugh, who was one of um, maybe two women on the law school faculty at the time. So she was really a pathfinder, a pathbreaker in legal education. And I learned so much from her. I just soaked up everything that I, I watched her do and, and heard from her and so forth. And fortunately, I, I rose pretty rapidly in my career at the law school. So I started working as a secretary to some faculty members. And when I left the law school 28 years later, I was the administrative dean. So I was essentially administering the law school at that time. I was the COO, CFO for the law school. And, um, and loved my career there. And in the course of that, uh, that work, of course, I worked a lot with students. I worked with law school faculty members. 
uh, worked with my colleagues on the law school staff, administrators, deans, associate deans. And um, at about year 26, I thought, you know, it's time for me to start thinking about doing something else. Um, and so I started very carefully exploring next steps. I knew I wanted to stay in higher education. I absolutely loved it. It was, I felt like I had died and gone to heaven. Um, and I learned the critical importance of higher education in a civil society. And notwithstanding the jokes about lawyers, I really do view lawyers as the priests of democracy. They have a really important role in our society. But all that is to say that, that higher education became so important to me as a, a vehicle for advancing our society and, and protecting our society and protecting the people, the individuals within our society. So started looking for the next step and knew that because I had worked in a single school within a major uh, private research institution with a okay. huge sciences center. Can I, can I ask a question really quickly? I mean, sure. first of all, I love it when people share. There is a recurring theme with leaders that we talk to in general and on this show, and it's the importance of mentorship. And you have gone on to have one of the most successful tenured careers in advancement. What if you hadn't met Lucy McHugh? And what do you think it was? I mean, this was probably a time period when, uh, you know, mentorship or getting a mentor or a sponsor in the workforce wasn't probably even a concept the way that it is thought of today. What do you think made Lucy willing to take you under the your under her wing? Um, and I'm curious how that mentorship relationship evolved as you advanced through your career at the law school. It's really inspiring. Um, first of all, I I credit Lucy with my becoming the professional woman that ultimately I became. Now, we didn't have a formal mentoring relationship. Uh, it was a very informal relationship. Lucy constantly guided me during the years that we worked closely together. She very gently uh, would correct me sometimes. She would what, provide- What's an example? I mean, do you have anything that comes to mind where she provided feedback? Because I feel like it can be such a sensitive thing if it isn't done the right way. People take offense to it. Uh, I'm curious if you've embraced that in your own leadership style. It's something I struggle with at times for sure. But was there anything along the way where she intervened just to provide an example or maybe even more, more generally? You know, I, can't, I cannot think of a specific example, Brent. Uh, first of all, it was so long ago. Uh, secondly, it was done in such a, a tactful and uh, gentle way, an often humorous way, that it didn't feel like correction, but that's really what it was. It was, you know, she was kind of keeping me between the rails and making sure that in my naivete, I didn't, I didn't make a huge faux pas in the, uh, the very complex political enterprises that are higher education. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she just, she just found a way to always help me along the way. And, and then just by virtue of how she conducted herself, a brilliant woman, absolutely brilliant, um, self-effacing. She never, 
you would you would never know uh, unless you had spent some time with her, seen her in the classroom, read some of her scholarly work, how brilliant she was. Um, and she was just an amazing woman. And so I've, I've had the great good fortune to carry that with me through my career. And what I learned, one of the things I learned from her is how critically important it is to bring other people along. And so I've always viewed it as a part of my responsibility as I was navigating my career to keep an eye out for other people coming along behind me. Not sometimes women, not always women, whoever it was that I felt had uh, potential and capacity and capability and the desire to do really good work, to do important work. Just bringing other people along behind us is so, so important. And it's a responsibility that I think we all have. Well, it's really amazing to see uh, that you benefited from it and have uh, embraced that approach. Uh, and I'd love to learn more about how you, you know, how you ha have done that, especially recognizing that there, there aren't a lot of female leaders in your role, uh, and certainly not as many who have risen to the, the level of seniority you have at multiple institutions. And I imagine um, uh, there are a lot of folks who must look to you uh, to Lucy and, and I'm curious if that's something you, uh, you'd be willing to, to share your perspective on, um, with our audience. Well, I think people do look to, in particular women, but I think men as well look to successful, accomplished, highly professional people who not only do good work, but who are committed to the people around them. And I think that's, that's really the difference between um, a, a leader who, who's an effective leader and is highly accomplished and a servant leader. Uh, you know, a servant leader, it tends to be more focused on the greater good and what we should be doing to not only advance the mission of whatever the organization it is we are serving, uh, that we are leading in, um, but serving the people around us and enabling them to achieve their greatest potential. And if we do that well, it elevates our capacity across the enterprise. It, so in doing the right thing, you know, it, it really ends up being somewhat self-serving because it enables us all to be more successful. And so on that journey into the COO, CFO for the law school, then the pivot came to be more focused within the advancement realm or alumni relations development. Was it called advancement when you made that shift? I mean, roughly. It was, called, was, it was called institutional advancement at Emory right. University at the time. And the, I think what attracted me to it, Brent, is the fact that in all of my roles at the law school over those 28 years, I interacted a lot with law students, um, either as an advisor, I was the registrar, I was the director of admissions for um, a little over a decade. So I knew so many of our students. I admitted many of them to law school. And then over the years, when I moved into the senior administrative dean role, then I knew them as alumni. And I, I loved getting to know them. I loved their stories. I loved seeing what they accomplished when they went out into the world. And so 
I naturally did a lot of collaboration with my advancement colleagues in the law school, our director of development, our director of alumni relations, our director of career services, and loved not only the internal work, but the external relations work as well. So when I was looking very strategically for my next move, uh, it was somewhat natural for me to look what, at what was then institutional advancement. And fortunately, um, the, the right thing came along at the right time, and I moved into that role, and I, I became the vice president for operations for what then became the Office of Development and Alumni Relations, and worked um, a lot in the advancement services operations space in development and alumni relations, um, and did that for a, a long time. And then you know, about 37 years at Emory, I thought, you know, every 37 years or so, it's a good idea to make a change. So, but it sounds like even though you weren't a faculty member per se, you almost had that type of relationship with, with folks who were students, who went on to advance their careers. I mean, I'm curious, were there any, any people maybe that you're still in touch with today that you first met as, as students? I mean, that's, that's got to oh, be a really neat experience. One of my favorite stories is, um, is a young man, when I was the director of admissions at the law school, and at, that, at the time, uh, admission to law school was highly, highly competitive. One, there weren't nearly as many law schools as there are now. The job market for lawyers was fantastic, um, so it was very competitive. And so we always had a very active waiting list that we maintained at the law school because we simply couldn't admit all of the highly qualified applicants. And so one of the things I was always looking for when I had to make decisions about whom to admit from the waiting list, assuming we had additional spaces to become available in the entering class, was who are the people who really expressed an interest? Uh, in, who was just, I could tell was so passionate about coming to Emory and if he or she was admitted from the waiting list, they'd be there in a heartbeat, even if it but, was the So day not day. just, I really want to go to law school, but I want to go to law school at Emory. At Emory, yeah, that's right. I mean, my life will be over if I can't go to law school at, at Emory. Um, so there was a young man, he, um, he had been in the military and he worked locally, he was from the local area, and he called me every week. And, and he actually worked at the local farmer's market um, that I used to go to almost every week. And I would see him there and he would say, Jane, I just, I really, really wanna come. Do you think any spaces are gonna open up? And he was just a lovely young man. So um, I, I thought, oh my gosh, if. I, I so hope that this works out, but it was very, the way the, the way the class set up was, I mean, we, we had to stick to a certain number. You, you couldn't, if you had 25 or 30 extra students, that was a real problem. So I had to really monitor it very carefully. It isn't, wasn't that, oh, well, we can just admit a few more. That's not how it worked. And so lo and behold, I had uh, a couple of spaces to open up at the class. So I called him. I was so excited to make this phone call because I knew he was going to be over the moon, right? So I called and I said, Mark, this is, this is then Jane DeFalco at the Emory Law School. And I have great news for you. Um, I've had a seat to open up in the class and I'm delighted to offer you admission to the Emory Law School. And he said, oh, oh, well, that's good. Thank you. And I thought, where, where's the excitement? Where's the excitement? I was so, I was so crestfallen. And I learned afterwards that he was just so shocked. He just 
he couldn't, he could barely respond. But so he came to the Emory Law School, very, just terrific, terrific guy. Um, it, coincidentally, we had a text exchange just the other day. Now, this was back in probably 1983, 1984, right? So we've maintained a relationship over the decades. And, um, and that's, that's one of the things I so loved about my work there. I loved interacting with the students. That's amazing. And the fact, I mean, you must have made so many of those kinds of calls uh, to, to, to remember that one so poignantly is, uh, yeah. is really, really neat. And so as you, um, uh, after 37 years, feeling like it might be time for a change, um, mm -hmm. how do you even start that process when, when you've been with, with one culture, one community, you've, you've grown up who you just mentioned, where, where, do you, where do you go to, to even evaluate other possibilities? Oh boy, that, that was an interesting experience for me. And that's a great question because I thought I had it all figured out. So I retired from Emory in, in July um, and I thought, okay, I'm going to take six months and I'm going to shift gears mentally. I'm going to think about what I want to do next. At the time, I was thinking maybe I ought to go to work for a, a non-higher education, not-for-profit. Did a lot of networking. Um, and, and so I, my plan was to be in my next gig by that January, right? Six months later or thereabouts. And as the fall went on, I realized I couldn't even envision myself anywhere else because I had, I literally had grown up at Emory. It was so much a part of who I was that I could not, I couldn't envision myself anywhere else. And so I, I talked with my husband and I said, you know, this, I, I can't figure this out. And so we agreed I was going to take a little bit more time. In the meantime, uh, Johnny Ray, a person that I had worked with at Emory, he was the, the senior VP for development alumni relations for a time. And I worked closely with him left Emory to be the CEO of the Arizona State University Foundation. And when he left, the um, few years before that, he kept talking with me about coming out to ASU. And I said, I'm not moving to the desert, are you crazy? Um, but anyhow, so I, he asked me to come do some consulting for him at the ASU Foundation that winter, which I did. So I visited several times, did an assessment of the foundation, uh, came to know the people, came to know the area. The first time, I remember so vividly, the first time I went out there to visit, he actually picked me up at the, at the airport, Sky Harbor, and we're driving to the foundation offices and I'm looking around and it was all brown. You know, there were stones and rocks and, and no, very few trees. And uh, it was, I thought, oh my gosh, this, this is awful. How can anybody live here? And after a few more visits, I thought, this is really awesome. It's big blue sky as far as you can see, surrounded by the mountains. You know, the Phoenix area is in the valley. So, so beautiful, the Valley of the Sun. And um, so after that assessment, after spending a fair amount of time out there, um, he finally convinced me to come to work with him at the ASU Foundation. So we went out to the desert. Um, my husband, God bless him, he's just, he's so supportive. It's, you know, I just keep dragging him around. 
uh, to all these different places. And so we went out to, to Scottsdale, went to work, loved it, loved living in the desert. You know, it has its own kind of beauty, wonderful people there from all over the country. Arizona State is an amazing institution. And you probably know of Michael Crow, the president of Arizona State. He's still the president, one of the most innovative presidents ever. Which year did you arrive there? I arrived there in May of 2010. May of 2010. That's what I thought. And interesting you bring that up because I believe it was the fall of, or, or the spring of 2011, was the first time that I was invited to present at the ASU GSV uh, Innovation Summit, which was basically this gathering of, of ed tech companies that Michael Crow, in partnership with the firm called GSV, mm-hmm. um, Michael Moe, Deborah Quazzo, amazing leaders, invited all of uh, these entrepreneurs to come out. And we all got eight minutes to do our elevator pitch at the uh, Innovation Center out there. Um, And it has, I mean, that's where it started. And it was Mm -hmm. at a time when ASU was doing so many innovative things Mm -hmm. that as we sit here in 2020, look so, uh, you know, obvious in hindsight, but we're so, so new. Um, And so I I remember landing at Sky Harbor and kind of looking around, having a lot of the same reactions that you described, but uh, it's always had a, a, a good place in our, in our journey. So so you're inspired by Michael's unbelievably big and bold vision. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, completely different context than Emory University, elite right. liberal art institution in, uh, you know, with a big health center in Atlanta. Um, what was that like? Um, not just kind of operationally, culturally. I mean, the whole thing just had to be so different. It was very, very different, uh, but in a very wonderful way. Um, you know, Emory is an amazing institution and literally life-saving work going on at Emory University. Um, Arizona State at the time was the largest public institution under a single administration in the country. At that time, I think there were about 60,000 students. And um, it was just amazing to me and a very diverse student body and you know, you, if you were driving around campus, you had to be really careful because all these students are riding these long boards, zipping all around the campus. I was always afraid I was going to pick off a couple of students on the way to work every day. Um, and all, uh, Arizona State's mission really resonated with me on, on a personal level because, you know, Michael's vision was all about access. He always said it was not about who you exclude, but who you include. Um, And it was about doing research that had practical application in people's lives, in in improving people's lives. Those things really resonated with me. And so I loved being in a major public institution of higher education. So it was just, it was fantastic. And it was a wonderful experience. I had wonderful colleagues, um, the faculty, the deans there, just, it was amazing. And a tremendous amount of innovation. One of the most interesting things about being there was, you know, Michael, because he was always thinking, he is the energizer bunny, and he's always thinking about the next great idea and the next great and important thing to do. So you barely get started with one thing. And 15 minutes later, he says, oh, well, we need to do this and this and this and this. And it's like, okay, just give us a minute, okay? But it was great fun. It was very energizing. 
And, you know, I plan to spend the rest of my career there. Bill and I bought a house in Scottsdale. We love the lifestyle, love the people, just love the, you know, the big sky and all of that in the Valley of the Sun. And then Auburn University came calling, you know, a, a very unexpected opportunity. Um, and what inspired me to take a look at this um, were two things. One, I'd get to lead Auburn's first billion dollar campaign. And two, the Office of Development really needed some tuning up. Um, it had not had great leadership for a number of years. And, and it, it needed a transformation. And I love building and transforming, organi uh, transforming organizations. I love creating environments in which people can do their highest and best work and can be successful on behalf of the institution. So Bill and I talked about it and I fully explored it. And I said, you know, I, I think this is my dream job. He said, okay. So we sold the house in Scottsdale and moved to Auburn and never looked back. I, I, I do look back frequently just in terms of missing my Arizona State friends and so forth. But this has been um, an amazing way, an amazing uh, kind of final, final step in my, my higher education journey. Um, we've had such a great time uh, helping to tell Auburn's story. This is a really unique institution. Um, there is an authentic sense of family about this place. And you mentioned it, Brent, from your visit here last fall. Um, and, and I was skeptical about that. You know, did I had you know that, though? I mean, you'd been in the sector for a long time. You must have mm -hmm. had friends or colleagues who, did you have an impression of Auburn? I mean, what did, did you know that it was kind of, I don't know if turnaround story is the right, uh, from a development perspective, the right way to describe it. You said tuning up. But how much of that did you know? through just it being a tight-knit community and advancement versus you had to go through the process and come to your own assessment? I, I had to go through the process and figure that out. Um, I, of course, I knew of Auburn University because we lived in Atlanta for, for decades. And many of my daughter's classmates from St. Pius High School in Atlanta came to Auburn. And, you know, quite frankly, for a number of years, I, like many people, thought Auburn was a private institution because it almost has that private institution feel about it. But it's a public institution. It's the land-grant institution in the state of Alabama. And, uh, but beyond that, I knew it was a good school, and, but I, I knew relatively little about it. So as I was going about my process of discernment, if you will, and learning more about the institution, I thought, this, there are amazing things happening at Auburn University that nobody knows about because Auburn, being the kind of humble Southern institution that it is, does not do a good job of telling its story. We are not good about blowing our own horn. The other thing I, I heard and read about Auburn was this Auburn family. And so once Bill and I knew we were coming to Auburn, I said, okay, we'll see about this Auburn family thing. Every institution talks about being a community and a family. We'll see. And about two months in, I said to my husband, you know, this is different. This Auburn family is authentic. This is not like anything we've experienced before. And that's one of the things that makes this such a wonderful place. Um, is it perfect? Absolutely not. Uh, we have a lot, we have a lot of untapped opportunity here. Um, but it's been really exciting to help the development team realize its potential, 
as, as a community of development professionals, whether they're frontline or whether they're in the advancement services arena. And, you know, the result is that we, we had a very successful billion dollar campaign. We reached our goal 16 months ahead of schedule. We ended up raising $1.2 billion. We were the first institution in the state of Alabama to, to raise a billion dollars in a fundraising campaign. Are there other um, big institutions in Alabama? Uh, yeah, just imagine. Just I'm kidding. You know, those one or two, one or two. That was a layup. It's fine. That which shall remain nameless. Fair enough. Fair enough. I won't ask again. Um, <laughs> so you talk about the family, and, and I felt it for sure. But at the same time, I am really curious because um, – one of the challenges that I think leaders in many organizations have to, to balance is how do you create a culture and a community that is both incredibly tight knit, but also really high performing. And one thing family really can't do is, um, you know, you, you, you can't uh, fire your family members, right? I mean, it's like, how do you, you really are a family yeah. and how, how do you kind of walk that line? I think coaches have to do that all the time. And, the professional sports arena? How do you build a really tight-knit culture, but at the same time, um, make that call between, do I have the right players, uh, but need a better program, a better strategy, or do I have the wrong players? And without getting into too many details, it sounds like that's some of what you had to navigate in Absolutely. how do you balance the family environment, but at the same time, really create a high-performing organization. Well, you've touched on something that was critically important, Brent. Um, and one of the challenges here when I arrived was this, this sense of family and the fact that everybody is friends with everybody else. And there are lots of familial relationships within the university, in part because this is a small town. A lot of people work at Auburn University or are connected to Auburn University in some way. So in some ways, they're literally family. They're cousins. Literally. Oh yeah, extended that's right. family. Okay, that's that's exactly right. So, um, interestingly, when I was going through the the recruitment process, uh, I didn't meet anybody on the development team, and I thought that was very interesting. Um, but so I got here, and on my first official day, <laughs> my first official day, I had not met anybody. So I called a staff meeting because I wanted to lay eyes on my team. I wanted them to lay eyes on me. I wanted to meet them. Uh, I wanted them to know why I came here and what I hoped we could accomplish together. And I also wanted to lay out my expectations. And, you know, people who know me and who have known me for a long time, I think it, it's, it's not uncommon for it to be said, she's tough, but she's fair. And um, so I wanted to be real clear about what my expectations were. And there were a few things that I said in that first staff meeting. Um, one, I think it's a privilege to work in higher education and it's a privilege to work at Auburn University. And that means we earn our keep every day. We give full measure each and every day. And I said, and at that point, you know, I knew we were going into a billion dollar campaign. I said, and if we're going to be successful in a billion dollar campaign, that means we go beyond full measure. We have to bust it every day. And if you don't want to do that, or you can't do that, no harm, no foul, but you can't work here. And I saw some eyes getting really big. And then I saw some people kind of rolling their eyes thinking, yeah, right. So I, I was very clear from literally from day one, what my expectations were. 
And then I reinforce that every day, every day. Uh, you know, we very clearly articulated expectations. We held people accountable to those expectations. And most people were thrilled with that. They, they said, okay, now I know, I know what the deal is. I know what the expectations are. I can do that. And some didn't want to do that. They, you know, they weren't interested in working hard. They had had a pretty sweet deal. I mean, there was one example, this one just still blows me away. There was a, a member of the team, who this is prior to my arriving here, who didn't come to work for two weeks, just because his heart wasn't in it. So he just didn't come to work. No, and there, and then he comes back, no, no uh, ramifications of that. You know, things just kind of went right on. And so it was that sort of lack of accountability that made it difficult for the good people to do good work, to achieve their potential. And so we changed that pretty quickly. And um, so you talk about, you know, not being able to fire your family. So when the first situation came along, when I knew I was going to have to make a change, um, and Auburn University didn't like to fire people. I mean, the, the institution, there, there was... A, a sense of mutual loyalty to the institution, you know, loyalty by the employees to Auburn and Auburn's loyalty to its employees to a fault, literally. And so, um, you know, so I'm, I'm dealing with this situation and doing all the stuff I had to do in the documentation and gathering information. And so I, you know, I consult with my colleagues in the human resources division. I said, okay, this is, this is where we're going. This is what we're going to do. They said, Oh, Oh no, we, we don't, we don't fire people. I said, well, I do. So you can either help me with this or I'm just going to deal, do it. And then you can deal with the fallout. And so we formed a, a mutually beneficial partnership and we made the changes we need to needed to make. And, you know, when you, when you eliminate, I don't want to call it dead weight. That sounds way too pejorative, but when you eliminate the people who are kind of dragging down the organization, everybody else kind of pops up. So tell me about that, because I, I totally feel that, and, and it's a, it is a sensitive topic, and I am grateful that you're willing to discuss it. Not everybody mm -hmm. is comfortable doing so, mm -hmm. but I do think that uh, that is the hidden cost of, of being extra uh, flexible with people or being mm -hmm. nice and not making those kinds of tough decisions, is it really does hold back some of your best performing people who want to be on a high caliber right. team. Right. And, and so I'm curious if you saw people flourish or other people step up who maybe hadn't been challenged in the way that you were willing to challenge them before. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was, and that, that, that's where the joy is, Brent. When you see people who have been held back because they, there were not, um, consistently clearly articulated expectations or guidance about what what you're supposed to be doing and and what it means to be productive and effective and professional that was another thing there was just kind of a a, a general lack of professionalism not because what's an example what does that mean in your mind i mean well, obviously you are yeah. you are representatives of the institution of the brand was it internal professionalism in the way that people interfaced with, with donors? I mean, what, what did you see? All of the above, all of the above. The way they interacted with donors, the way they, the way they were just kind of out in the community, um, the way they presented themselves, 
the way they talked if they were in, in a public setting, at a, at a public gathering or, you know, a party or something. Um, you know, the way they would talk about other people within the university um, and the way they would dress and just all of those things. And so, you know, another part of, of so my... If I were a new, if I were a new mm -hmm. hire, okay, I'm a new hire, I've started after you have come in, made your assessment, tried setting new expectations, what are the bullet points that you want me and all of my colleagues to understand as it relates to how I conduct myself? I mean, did you have a common set of principles that you, that you shared with yeah. folks? Yeah, first of all, and, and I do this um, at our, um, our new employee orientation. I mean, I, I am the first session new employees have when they come to when they join the office of development team. And um, I, first of all, talk about what, what's going on at this institution that makes it so special and so important and why Auburn University matters. But the other, one of the other things I talk about is, one, these relationships that we are developing with probable donors and with donors are business relationships. They're not personal relationships. They're business relationships on behalf of Auburn University. Um, secondly, when we are out and about in our lives, living our lives, this is a small town. Everybody knows who's associated with Auburn University. So that means that whether we're on the clock or off the clock, we are representing Auburn University. So that means whether we're out having dinner with friends, if we're having, uh, we're at, at church, we're at the grocery store, whatever we're doing, people look at us and they think Auburn University. So how we dress, how we talk, how we interact with other people, all of those things reflect on this institution. Um, and we have to be cognizant of that. Uh, it, it, go, it gets to, I mean, this is just a small example, but it's, it, I was really struck by it in my first football season at Auburn, which was just amazing. You know, this isn't the first SEC school at which I've worked, right? So we have a great president suite. And of course, it's a wonderful opportunity to engage um, some of our, our most generous benefactors and, and people that we hope will become some of our most generous benefactors. And fortunately, we're a, our development officers who have prospects or donors in the president suite are able to come by to visit with them uh, when they're in the suite. So I'm at my first game in the president suite. And some of my colleagues. The eagle's and, flown around. The eagle has you're, flown. You're, the band has come out. The, in. The, the drum major has come out. Next to the eagle, the drum major is my favorite, my favorite Auburn experience. Um, and I see some of my colleagues coming in. Some of the guys have on shirts with no collars, basically T-shirts. And some of the young women have on these really, really short skirts or these really plunging necklines, you know, there's too much cleavage being shown. That's not a problem for me. I don't have any cleavage, but you know, it's just, uh, I thought, okay, this is, this is not how we represent Auburn University. So your blood pressure's rising. You're, yeah. you're cringing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm this embarrassed. Yeah. I'm embarrassed. Um, but you know, it, the reality, reality is nobody had told them what they should be doing, what was appropriate, what was not appropriate. So we have a conversation every summer before football season starts about the president suite and just kind of the protocols in the president suite. And we talk about attire. I talk about attire um, because I, I don't ever want to see that again. 
And uh, once again, people rose to the occasion. They just, they just need to understand what the expectations are. They need guidance. They need mentoring. They need someone to, to demonstrate what it means to be a professional. And when in 99% of people, once they get that, they're, they're good and they will, they'll model that behavior. And most people, um, avoid uncomfortable conversations. My sense is you're not afraid of an uncomfortable conversation. <laughs> no. Why is that? Who, I mean, where did you learn that along the way? Cause it's, you make it sound so easy, but I am yeah. sure there are people listening who have had those unprofessional experiences where somebody drank too much at homecoming or did something embarrassing, but they never gave the feedback and right. it's just let it go, let it go. Because it's hard to have those conversations. Who taught you that? Um, I don't. I don't think anybody taught me. First of all, I'm from the Midwest, so we Midwesterners tend to be a little bit more straightforward. You know, what you see is what you get. Um, I never want to intentionally hurt anybody's feelings. That's. I mean, that's just not who I am. I really. I enjoy people. I love people. Ultimately, my responsibility is to the institution I am serving. And so I take very seriously all aspects of that responsibility. And a part of that responsibility is making sure that the people under my leadership uh, are representing the institution in a way that is appropriate and professional and that will help to advance the institution's mission. If we are behaving in ways that are potentially um, harmful to the institution, then we're abdicating our responsibility. And for a leader to not address those issues is, is an abdication of responsibility. So I, part of it is I just take my responsibilities very seriously. And I believe that people want to do the right thing. They just need to understand what the right thing is sometimes. And so sometimes you have those conversations one-on-one, -on -one, you know, the whole issue of attire and protocol in the president's suite, we do this as a group so that everybody knows. Uh, you find ways to do it so that you're not beating people up, but, but so that people will clearly understand what the expectations are. Well, I think that uh, that is uh, not easy as a leader, but uh, I know that employees who do get that feedback appreciate it. They know where they stand. They know what your mm -hmm. expectations are. Uh, in some cases, there maybe is a self-awareness issue that then gets addressed. And so um, I'm grateful for you uh, willing to share, uh, you mm -hmm. know, some of those uh, tough, tough situations. That being said, um, you came out of all of that and have created uh, a very high-performing, uh, outperforming institution in many regards. Uh, and I'm curious, when you think about the before and after, uh, if you will, from that first day at the president's suite, the eagle, the drum major, the necklines, and the t-shirts yeah. to last season. And when you think about the campaign, the success, what really stands out as being some of your most memorable or, or proudest moments during that period? Oh, you know, really on a day-to-day -day basis, just watching how my colleagues do their work on behalf of Auburn University. I'm so proud of the work they do. It really is a, a highly professional, high-performing, highly effective organization. Um, you know, do we have areas where we can be better? Absolutely. I mean, we're, you're never there. If you ever think you're there, then you're, you're delusional. But um, so that's fantastic. But then when I think about some of the milestones in the campaign, 
um, just the degree to which people worked so hard and they were so committed and diligent and energetic and creative and excited about the opportunity to tell Auburn's story in a way that really inspired people to reach beyond what they thought they might be able to do. That is one of the things that made me the most proud. That was just so exciting uh, to see people be highly successful and, and to take great pride in what they were doing. They really embraced the challenge and they, they embraced um, the success, not only their own success or that of their particular unit, but of their colleagues and of the entire institution. So there's a great sense of pride, a, a sense of common pride among the team for what we accomplished in the campaign. And that was really fun, really exciting. It's not for the faint of hearts, a lot of heavy lifting, but it was eminently worthwhile. I'm, I'm curious along that, that journey or in your career more broadly, you talked about, you know, challenging people to reach higher. And I feel like there's a theme, which is, you know, you, you are unafraid to challenge your staff to strive for a higher level of, of effectiveness and performance. You're unafraid to challenge donors to strive for a higher level of philanthropic impact. And I'm curious, you've shared some neat examples with your staff. I am curious one of the things I'm always fascinated by, I haven't been able to sit in meetings where you're across from a donor making a multi-million dollar solicitation. Um, mm -hmm. But it's also so interesting that, that uh, unlike other, uh, if you think of philanthropy as a sale, um, uh, most products have price points, whereas philanthropy could be 100,000, a million, 2 million, 5 million, 10 million, sometimes from the same individual donor, if you will. Mm -hmm. And how do you think about the negotiation aspect of challenging donors to reach higher, um, but not alienating relationships, especially in that family context that you were describing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Any, any experiences stand out, good or bad, where you reached too high or you know, mm -hmm. not high enough, or you inspired somebody to, to maybe step up to levels that they wouldn't have even imagined possible? You know, Brent, I view all of, all of this as, as a conversation with, with our probable donors and uh, getting to know them well enough so that you get a sense of what they care about, what they're passionate about. Um, and, and I see us as facilitators. You know, as you know, we don't decide where people invest their philanthropy. You, you present them with opportunities, you present them with options, and then you, you listen carefully and you watch and you, you discern what, what resonates with them. And then when you get a sense of that, then you begin to talk in more, in more detail about what goes on in this program activity, whatever it happens to be, or what's going to go on in this building and why it matters. It's not the building that matters, it's what goes on in the building that matters. And, um, and then when you see people starting to get excited about that and their, their face kind of lights up and they say, well, what about this? And what about that? And, and all of that, you know, then you really, you just continue that conversation. Um, you know, one of my favorite, favorite donor stories relates to John and Rosemary Brown, uh, both of whom are Auburn alumni. Um, John was a member of the Auburn University Foundation Board when I came to Auburn in the spring of 2012, so I got to know him then. And um, he's just an amazing man. He was the CEO of Stryker and built the company into a multi-billion dollar company. And he and Rosemary are the most normal, humble people you could imagine. 
And when one of my colleagues and I went to talk with them about their participation in the campaign, we brought several ideas to them. John is a graduate of the Samuel Ginn College of Engineering, so he's an engineer, and Rosemary is a graduate of our College of Sciences and Mathematics, and she was a math teacher for 30 years. So they both had strong ties to the university. So we brought ideas to them that we thought they might be interested in, that we thought might resonate, resonate with them, and we talked about all of them, and they asked questions, and they're very curious people, so they like a lot of information, which is great. It's very engaging to, to talk with them. And so then, you know, we kind of left it with them and said, you know, we'll please think about this, and then we'll circle back with you. So in a couple of months, we went back, and they told us what they wanted to do. Um, John and Rosemary later in their lives became um, very interested in the arts. They didn't have much time for it as they were raising kids and having their careers and John was building this company and so forth. But later in their careers and their lives, they became engaged in the arts. And they also were very fond of our president, uh, Jay Gouge and his wife, Susie. And Jay and Susie always had this vision that Auburn needed a performing arts center because we're one of few major higher education institutions that, that didn't have one. And in part because of their respect and love for Jay and Susie, they decided that a lead gift for Performing Arts Center at Auburn is one of the things they wanted to do. And then because of John's um, deep ties to the College of Engineering and, and his great respect for Chris Roberts, the Dean of the College of Engineering, they wanted to build a new Engineering Student Achievement Center. So, they made a $55 million gift that would accomplish these things. So that was just so exciting. And so we actually announced that gift at our campaign kickoff. You know, you always want to announce a, a big gift or two when you do the public kickoff of the campaign. So we had this fabulous campaign kickoff. And I, I, I credit my colleagues uh, in development communications and marketing with it. They did a magnificent job. My colleague, Jason Peavy, who, who conceptualized it and, executed it with the help of so many people. So, and it's very well scripted. I mean, everything was scripted. So we announced this gift. One of our, a couple of our campaign co-chairs helped me announce it. And I introduced John and Rosemary and they came up to talk about the gift and why they were doing it and so forth and so on. And they're talking and John pulls a little yellow piece of paper out of his jacket pocket. And I thought, oh my gosh, what is he doing? That is not in the script. And I was off to the side by that time, and I was about to chew my nails. And um, so he said, you know, when Rosemary and I were driving down here, they live in Atlanta, we were thinking about the fact that we graduated from Auburn in 1957. We got married in 1957. 1957 is the year that Auburn won its first national championship. And I thought, they're going to increase the gift from 55 to 57. I thought, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. And, and he said, so we decided that we really needed to do $57 million instead of 55. I thought, well, that's the easiest $2 million I've ever raised. Um, but it was such fun, and it was so spontaneous, and of course, everybody was so excited. And so their $57 million gift thus far is the single largest gift to Auburn University. It was the largest single gift in the campaign, and it was just amazing. It was just, it was a magical, magical moment for, for Auburn and certainly for me. It's just, uh, it was really a, a highlight of my career. So it was just great fun, great fun. We're so lucky to get to do what we do. 
Incredible. Now, on the other hand, I will just uh, share my memory when I visited um, Auburn was that you welcomed me to an event before the football game that was on the other end of the spectrum, which was not about the 57 million, which is incredible, but it was about loyalty. And I, that's right. Who had given at least 25 years in a row or something along those lines. And I had my new Auburn sweatshirt, my new Auburn hat. uh, And it was also so neat to see. and, And I got to sit at a table with a group of folks who were sharing, you know, their, their perspective. And, and so, you know, having, not only a great appreciation for the transformational impact of what that that kind of gift can offer, but also really investing in programming to support uh, folks who've just been really consistently loyal. I mean, to not even forget one year to make your gift. That's, that's pretty amazing, isn't it's amazing. it? It's amazing. And the room was, it was hundreds of people. And yeah, so I'm curious when you was. think about uh, you know, one of the challenges, though, as an advancement leader, is that you you have um, you have to steward those transformational relationships in the manner you described, uh, but you also want it to be inclusive to a broad base, both short term and long term. That's really hard to do because the way that you go and steward one million, five million, fifty-seven million dollar gifts is very different than one hundred dollar, five hundred, seven hundred dollar. Gifts. And so how do you think about that tension, the short term, the long term? Um, what's your experience? Yeah. You know, I, um, I don't think of it as, as a tension at all. I see it as, as all as critically important parts of the whole. We couldn't do what we do in advancing Auburn's mission without those hundreds, indeed thousands of people who give year over year over year. We have people who have given to Auburn for 55 plus years. Uh, And you're right. Imagine never forgetting a year, never missing a year over a half a century. That's incredible. When you look at the aggregate impact of those gifts, uh, I think Brent at the, at the um, event you attended the Catherine Cooper Cater circle event our 25 plus consecutive year donors, you know, the aggregate impact of their giving is $364 million, I think. That, that has a huge impact on this institution. So we ignore those critically important, very low, loyal donors at our peril. Um, they are every bit as important as the, the 10, the 12, the 40, the $57 million donor because the aggregate impact of their support is huge. And it takes all of them to make this institution what it is and what it will become. And so to me, that's every bit as exciting as honoring the, the mega donors, the principal gift donors. I mean, seeing the, the smiles on the faces of those people who recognize that we appreciate what they're doing. We know how important their, their year-over-year philanthropy is. So um, we, we have to do all of it. We have to do all of it. Absolutely. Um... And, uh, and your husband was there that day too. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. He's, he's always there. Right. Right with me. Um, so uh, look, I think one of the amazing parts, and I do want to be sensitive of time, but, um, there are junior level advancement professionals listening to this, um, and describing 
Jane, the secretary at the law school, coming from Northeastern Ohio to achieving what you've achieved is really inspiring and, and, and against the odds, let's be honest. Uh, right. and, I, and I feel like that's part of why you're so passionate about creating access to education for other people. Right. But at the same time, um, you didn't let those odds slow you down. You had some great mentorship that you shared uh, earlier. And to the development coordinators or development associates that are listening right now who are thinking, are you kidding me? Could I ever really be the VP of a large advance? I mean, what message or perspective would you share to some of those uh, individuals? Uh, because it really is um, amazing to, to hear more about how you've done what you've done. Well, my response is, yes, you can do that. You absolutely can achieve that. But there are, there are commitments you have to make along the way. What are those commitments? commitments? Those commitments to me are, one, always keeping the best interests of the institution at the forefront. You know, it's not about me. It's about the institution that I'm serving. It's about the students whose lives are being changed by this institution. Always conducting oneself like a professional. You know, never, ever behaving in a way that would bring embarrassment to you or to the institution or to your colleagues or to your donors or your alumni or whomever it might be. Always, always operating with the highest degree of integrity. That's another thing that I, I remind our new colleagues about. Um, if we do not consistently operate with the highest level of honor and integrity, we undermine our credibility and the, the credibility of the institution, the foundation, we might as well turn off the lights, close the doors and go home because people are not going to invest their personal resources in people and in an institution that they don't trust. Um, and then the other thing is just working hard. You know, I said before, this is not for the faint of heart. It is not for the faint of heart, but it's really important work. You know, we're, we're lucky. We don't have to get up every day and produce widgets. And I honor people who produce widgets because we need them. But I'm so privileged and blessed that I haven't had to do that in my career. And I appreciate that every day. And so I sort of do honor to that privilege by always working hard, always trying to do the right thing, always treating everybody, everybody with respect. And that's another thing that's not negotiable in our organization. Um, I don't care what your title is, where you sit in the organization, whether you're inside or outside the office of development, inside or outside the university, we will treat everybody with respect. And I firmly believe that if you do all of those things, that it, it ultimately redounds to your benefit. Um, and that certainly has been the case for me. And I could not be more uh, honored and humbled and grateful for the career that I've had and for the work that I've been able to do in higher education. Higher education is one of the most important institutions in a civil society. And for us to play a role in advancing uh, the strength of higher education is, is really a wonderful and honorable profession. And I'm, I'm very grateful for it. You said you were honored, humbled, and grateful. And, and Jane, if I may close our conversation today, I am honored, humbled, and grateful that you've been willing to uh, share with our audience, that you've been willing to provide me your perspective over the years. I really do appreciate it. And I think for all of the reasons you feel such commitment to the sector, so do I, so does my team. And um, we're just uh, grateful to be on the journey together. Absolutely. And I appreciate your partnership, Brent. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jane.